0: no broken body you can't raise no soul that you can't save things are possible things are I don't know if you're the type of person that likes to use the weather in order to predict the future. You shouldn't, that's satanic. But anyway, <laughs> um, I'm just kind of wondering if nine inches of snow tomorrow means that Buffalo won, and so we're celebrating, or that Buffalo lost, and we're sharing the curse with the rest of the country. Hard to know, but we'll, we'll know by later tonight, right? <laughs> one, way, one way or another. Yeah. So. Um, welcome to Southfield today. Fortunately, we are not in Buffalo. We're in a place where snow doesn't happen in, in quite the same batches that it does. You had quite a fun week. Yeah. Especially with uh, junior high kids. Uh, we, we got together yesterday to celebrate your mother's um, more than 40th birthday. And, um, and we, had, we had a great time together. 29. 29. 29. Times to <laughs> Stop. Uh, well, yeah, time. you You're two. digging your own Anyway, grave, pal. So, I can't um, help you here. So uh, anyway, we got together to celebrate that. We've, we've had this thing going on lately in our family. We're trying new things. So we've been exploring Thai restaurants. And so we got some Thai food from, wow, it was like within a minute, I think, of the old church building. Mm-hmm. And that was a lot of fun. Had that and, and spent time together.
1: It is fun because, like, growing up, I don't remember, like, you are... Wildly creative with food, but I don't remember our food being all that spicy. Like I remember, I mean, because m- mom and Shelly, nobody can really handle spice. So I think the, the spiciest thing we would have is salt. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yesterday as we're eating this Thai food, it's delicious. But you know, the rest of the family is like, if we're good. Yeah, but the rest of the family is sweating they're like oh, it's so hot. And you taste it, and it's like not hotter
0: than ketchup. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Exactly. They're they're they we're trying to break them in. So yeah. So while we were together, you told us that you had you had some fun with the junior hires this week. I'm going to sure hand did. this to you so yep. you can walk us through.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, I spend obviously my entire week with junior hires at the school, and then I I love what happens on Wednesday nights. We you know, get to come in, and and you'd think that a junior hire after whether sitting online all day or you know, being in school and then coming here, would just be totally exhausted. It's completely the opposite. They are wired, fired up, and it's a lot of fun. We started a series a few weeks ago where we're walking through life lessons from the life of Joseph. And we get to the point in Joseph's story, or we got to the point this week, where he's dealing with Potiphar's wife. And for those of you who know the story, uh, Potiphar's wife accused Joseph of doing something that he didn't do, uh, but it was a pretty bad accusation. And it made me, um, like, describing what she was accusing him of kind of makes me sweat when I'm talking to sixth s- graders. S- okay. Okay. Right. Okay. Right. like, normal conversation, I, you know, if this was a small group, you know, I'd do a deep dive and we could talk, but talking to sixth graders about this, I'm like, oh boy. So I'm trying to soften the blow. And fortunately, on Tuesday afternoon, I figured out how I was going to do this because one of my 6th graders at the, or 7th graders at the school made a joke and it took me a second to understand it. Not like I did, it's not that I didn't know what it was or what they were talking about, but it took me a brief moment to put the pieces together. And in that brief moment, this 7th grader looked me square in the eyes and said, take your time, boomer. <laughs> and I immediately... Oh, oh, man. Um, Boomer. Now, boomers, I mean, I, I, I get it, you're just calling me old, but boomers are like, 40s 50, you know 1940s
0: 1950s early 60s like you are at the tail I'm, I'm end. technically right at the end in yeah. fact they call me a tweener yeah. I'm, I'm I'm neither a true boomer right right and I was right. like hey kid easy I'm a
1: millen- oh, millennial <laughs> the pride yeah yeah so nothing to be proud of but I was like you know what I need to prove not only to myself but to the rest of these kids that I am not a boomer so on wednesday night we played a game that was going to help me not only prove that I'm not a boomer, but also segue into this Joseph series um, a little easier, and it's it's called Boomer Say What. We got hipster grandpa up here with his sick headphones and, and his tatted up sleeve and all that, uh, and I was like, okay, I need to prove to you that that you guys say some weird stuff like that slaps or it hits different, you know, like all, you have your terminology. And boomers have their terminology, and I'm not a part of either one. Okay, so what I said was, I'm going to show you some words, and you have to try and decipher what these boomer teenagers were saying when they said these words. Some of them were easy. Some of them were almost impossible. We'll start off easy. What do you guys think "cat" means? Anybody? It's just yeah. Just, yeah. Well, no, not a meow. No, just like a just like a guy, right? So I gave them time, they were split up into teams, and and every team got that, yeah, it's just a cool cool cat, you're You're just a guy, you know, let's hang out, it's a cool cat, you know. Then we get a little more difficult, but not too tough, come on, snake, let's rattle. It means, let's dance or let's fight, come on, snake, let's go, let's rattle, let's go. Next one, give me the skinny, come on, give me the skinny,
0: what is it, what is it? I love the New York accent that yeah, goes with being a hey, boomer. Give me this, you, That's can. good. <laughs> it
1: means tell me the truth. Be honest with me. And this is where we tied into our evening, because I found a term that boomers used for something extra special. Want to go to the submarine races? How who, many of you can you just that? yeah raise series, your hand? Raise if you know hand. what
0: this means? Wow, we are in rare company. I knew this.
1: means, want to go make out? So, we play this game, and you can see all the, like, because every other one had been, you know, kind of lighthearted and fun, like, come on, snake, let's rattle. And this one, you see all these junior hires' eyes go, boom, what? People would ask if you want to go make out? What? That's so weird. No, you can't do that. Ew, gross cooties. Well, then I started telling my story about Joseph and what Potiphar's wife was accusing him of doing. I was like, yeah, Uh, so, so Joseph, you know, she tears the coat off, and she brings it to Potiphar, and she's like, Potiphar, Joseph tried to take me to the submarine races. (laughs) And the feedback from parents the next day was, yeah, that's all they remember is what the submarine races
0: are.
1: (laughs) A lot of fun this week. A lot of fun. That was
0: fantastic and creative. I'll tell you what. Who wouldn't want to be in your youth group? Man, that's a blast. That's a lot of fun. You got your um, weekend update yesterday. And one of the things we wanted to highlight, we have two groups that were supposed to start last week that did not. So they kind of got a slow start. And uh, if you did not yet join into a group, these are great opportunities for you. So Dave Fields is leading a group on the book of Acts. They're doing the first 12 chapters, I believe. And last, last quarter, his group took the time to learn, you know, how do you study the Bible for your own? So they're going to be taking that book now and applying the same thing. So great group to join for guys. And then on the women's side, uh, Sherry Gierman is going to be leading a group Uh, That's a Priscilla Shire study of Elijah. So I love the relevance of Elijah, but I'll tell you what, Priscilla Shire, this woman, um, she's got some fire. If your coffee hasn't (laughs) been working yet today, here, this will give you a little wake up. Here's a sample.
1: Small group promos have come a long way since
0: 1995, huh? Priscilla learned from Elijah because she can bring the fire, man. (laughs) She's she is a powerful powerful presenter. So if you if you've not yet um, signed up for a group, there's an opportunity for guys and for girls. Those are both offered on on Tuesday night. So we hope you'll join and join up with those. I have some people this past week that that went through some um, hard things in their lives. Uh, early this week, Teresa Fields learned that her her mother had died after a, a lengthy a lengthy um, just a slow degrading of her body and her mind. And then um, on Wednesday, Eileen Miller learned that her brother died after a four-year battle with uh, colon cancer. So they're going to be doing the wake for him this Thursday from 2 to 8 at Overman in in Plainfield, and then the funeral is to be determined uh, later. But um, either of those people, if if you'd make sure to reach out to them and and give them your support during this time, that would be be incredibly helpful. So um, we're going to be looking at a, book, a chapter of the Bible today that, that I've fallen in love with this week. I mean, it's just a, it's a fascinating chapter in many ways. It's found in the book of Luke, chapter 8, uh, I believe starting with verse 40. And so Brian's going to start there and, and read these two stories to us that we're going to be looking at today.
1: Now when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the the people, they're crowding around and pressing against you. But Jesus said, No, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. Then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. While Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, he said. Don't bother the teacher anymore. Hearing this, Jesus turned to Jairus and said, Don't be afraid. Just believe, and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in with him except for Peter, John, James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for her. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She's not dead, but only asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned, and at once she stood up. Then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. That's right.
0: So we're in day 15 of 21 days of fasting and praying together. We go on through this Saturday. And in that time, we've been praying prayers that are marked by by three words. We've been praying prayers that are bold and humble and audacious. Boldness, of course, is that spirit that says, um, God has given me the right to just walk into his presence and speak. He's given me that right as a child of God to walk into his presence and speak. There's no reason to cower or hesitate. In fact, the book of Hebrews commands us. It says, let us come boldly into the throne of our gracious God. We, we're, we are permitted to walk right in. We are children of the heavenly father and we can walk in with boldness. Now, that boldness is tempered with humility. It's not just entering with boldness, but also entering in a humble way. And that humility is a recognition that I'm not walking to the presence of God because of who I am or what I've done or that I've earned it or deserved it. This isn't about my resume. This isn't about my morality or, or any of my actions. I'm able to enter boldly into the presence of God because Jesus is there with me. Because Jesus has died for my sins, and I have trusted in Christ as my forgiver and leader. And so now the Bible says, because of the work of Jesus, I have the right to be called a child of God. And so I can enter with boldness, and I can enter with humility. Then comes that word audacious. Uh, Maybe you've heard someone say this from time to time, or you've said it yourself. Of someone who's doing something, you've said the audacity. The audacity. The audacity of that woman. The audacity of that man. Can you believe it? It's our way of saying the nerve. And honestly, when we say it that way, it's, it's usually not complimentary, right? It's, it's rather derogatory. The audacity. How, how dare they say that? Well, audacious or audacity really has two different meanings. The second meaning is to show an impudent lack of respect. This clearly is not what we're talking about when it comes to being audacious. This isn't walking into God's presence and kind of doing a hey you owe me. I, you know, I've done good things for you. What have you done for me lately? That's, that's not the kind of audacious we're talking about. It really comes down to the first definition. The first definition is showing a willingness to take surprisingly bold risks. I, I'm, going to, I'm going to pray a risky prayer. I'm not just going to pray things that are, that are safe, things that might have happened anyway, uh, you know, and, but I'm going to pray them anyway. I'm going, to, I'm going to pray things that are out there. I'm going to pray things that have a degree of, of real risk to them and bring those requests to the presence of God. So we pray things that are bold and humble and audacious. One of the parts of this 14 days and journeying with God, has been to ask that question of myself repeatedly. What is it about me, what is it about my wiring, that I don't tend to naturally pray audacious prayers? I tend to naturally pray prayers that are a little bit more on the safe side, but there's something in me that I don't don't feel tremendous freedom to just go ahead and pray audacious prayers and I've talked to God about that a lot, and we've, we've kind of walked through some different things. I've thought about my family of origin, and not, not that they did anything negatively, but I think there are things that happened growing up that, that set some of that mindset for me. If you were to transport yourself right now back to my family, 1970, you'd discover a family in North Tonawanda that was lower middle class at best. I mean, we did not have much at all. We, we, we had what we needed to survive and maybe a touch more, and that was it. I still distinctly remember going with my mom to M&T Bank, cashing the check, 121 bucks. And then she gave part of that back to the bank the mortgage, now I think the mortgage, I'm not kidding, was like $25, which is just, you know, really. But anyway, she gave part of that, and then we went somewhere else, and she gave part to someone else, and then we went to Topps, which was our supermarket, and, and she, she handed a bunch of money away there, and then we went to the Meek market, and she handed a bunch of money away there. And I literally remember, remember coming down to the point that she said, we've used it all up, we'll have to wait until next week. We'll have to wait until next week for more. That was That was... The family in which I grew up. And so I don't know. I I don't know if it was things that were said. It's possible. I don't have a tape recording at the time. I think it has more to do with the way Dennis's brain worked. That I remember watching that and going, I can't ask my parents for things. They don't have anything. In fact, I didn't want to put them in the place of being embarrassed. That I might ask for something and they'd have to say, I'd love to. We just can't. I mean, you you saw me spend the last dollar, it's gone, there's nothing more there. And so I think a piece of that has kind of inhibited my heart a little bit. You know, it's 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 pulled that it's pulled that piece in a little bit. But another piece I think that plays in for me is that in my mind, somehow I equated being good with not being needy. Good kids don't need things, good kids are quiet. Good kids blend into the woodwork. If you're good, you don't ask for a lot. You're not needy. You just kind of sit back and, and participate in the life of the family. So I thought about that in light of my relationship with God. Well, clearly, God does not have the, the financial problems my family did, Right? I mean, in Sunday school, we'd sing this song. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills, the wealth in every mine. He owns the rivers and the rocks and rills, the sun and stars that shine, wonderful riches more than tongue can tell. He is my Father, so they're mine as well. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I know that He will care for me. Here's the way I interpreted that. God's loaded God's loaded. God's, God's got everything. And if it belongs to him and I'm his kid, it belongs to me too. So I certainly wasn't looking at God and saying, well, God's broke. What are we going to do? But I think that second part plays in a little bit. I thought God likes good kids and go, good kids don't ask for much. Good kids aren't needy. There are probably a couple other things that play in there that, that God's going to continue to reveal. But, but I want to be able to move to a place that audacious prayer is natural. It's a natural thing to come and pray audacious prayers to God. And so I've been searching the scriptures to ask how does God grow an audacious spirit? How does He grow that spirit of audaciousness within us? And that led me to the book of Luke, chapter 8. I, I got to admit, through the years, I've not spent a lot of time in Luke. I, I go to Matthew a lot, John all the time. You know, I, I've studied Mark in college and in seminary. And Luke is one of those books that I kind of, Christmas is done and we'll be back next year. You know, I, So I'm, I'm, I've decided this is kind of the year of Luke. I'm just ripping into Luke, trying to understand. Come to Luke chapter 8, and if you had no other part of the Bible to understand the ministry of Jesus, Luke chapter 8 just gives you, it gives you a sampler platter of everything Jesus is about. It starts out by talking about his followers and what he was doing. He's going from town to town, announcing the good news of the kingdom. This is the gospel. This is what it's all about. It says he took his 12 disciples along, but not just the 12. He took some women too. He took this woman named Mary Magdalene. He had cast seven demons out of her. He he took along a woman named Joanna and another named Susanna. In fact, Scripture tells us these women were actually financially helping to support the ministry of Jesus and the disciples. And you know, for us, we read over that and go, isn't that nice? You got to understand, Jewish people are hearing this and going, what? You're, You're involving women in your ministry? What is your deal, dude? They don't get it. And Jesus is saying, hey, kingdom of God is for everybody. The kingdom of God is for everybody. We we want to get everybody in on this. So so you have that introduction to Jesus that he's different than any other religious leader of his time. Then he breaks into a couple parables. Gives us the parable of the sower and the seed. Gives us the parable about the lamp. And then we actually meet his family. Mother Mary and and some brothers come to see Jesus. And and the disciples announce, your mother is here. And Jesus says... um, I got to tell you something. My family, my family's right here. My family, we're the people who obey God. That's my family. My family's not about blood. My my family's not about, about birth order. My family, my brothers and sisters, my fathers and mothers are the people who love and obey God. So he totally redefines family. And that wasn't to like, oh, I want nothing to do with Mary. That wasn't what this was about. He's just saying, this family of God is a totally different deal. Then, as if you haven't got enough already, he gets in a boat because, you know, one of them owns a boat. We're going to get to the other side in the boat and some of them are fishermen. He gets into the boat and this is the story where he gets in the boat. He goes to the front of the boat and he falls asleep and a storm comes up and these experienced fishermen are quite sure this is the death of them. The boat is just, it's going to get swamped. We're going to die. And you can see this little bit of debate. Should we wake him? What do you think? Should we wake him? It's getting pretty bad. Should we wake him? Yeah, we should probably wake him. Let's wake him. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Wake up. Wake up. We're going to die. We're going to die. And Jesus, my imagination, he stands up and he kind of rubs the, the sleepies out of his eyes. He's not even been asleep long, but he was stinking tired. And he wakes up and he's so calm. And what does he say to them? Where is your faith? And that line is important because throughout the rest of this chapter, that issue of faith is going to come up again and again. Where is your faith? And then he just says, quiet storm. And you can almost see him sit back down and look for his pillow. You know, he just, he's done. And, and the disciples are like, who is this man? Who are we following? Who is this guy? Well, they, they get all the way to the other side of the lake. And they come to an area called the, 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 the region of the, the Gerizines. So on the other side of the lake, you have something called the Decapolis. These are, these are 10 cities that are Gentile-controlled, Gentile-owned and operated. So this isn't all, there would be Jews living there, but it's controlled by Gentiles. They get there, and the local greeter comes out. He comes running out of the cemetery, stark naked and screaming. This is the guy that you want in the Chamber of Commerce. you know? Right? He comes running on out and he's naked and he's screaming. And, and we see this. It's fascinating. When Jesus is in the boat, he is the picture of calm. Jesus confronts this guy. Again, the picture of calm. You can almost see the disciples kind of, they're backing up. They're like, who is this guy? He's nuts. And there's Jesus just standing there. The picture of calm. Naked, homeless, screaming, demonic, oppressed guy comes out, possessed guy comes out and Jesus is as calm as can be. We're gonna leave that story alone. We're gonna jump down a little bit. So after he deals with him, they get back in the boat and they go back to the other side of the lake. They head on over to the area of Capernaum where Peter lived. A lot of ministry happens out of Capernaum. They get to the other side, and when they get there, sure enough, a crowd's waiting again. He can't go anywhere. Can you imagine, like, you get off the plane at the airport, and there are 100 people waiting for you? I, that doesn't happen to us. We're, we're common people. Jesus gets out of the boat, and there are all these people there. They're waiting for him. And one man in particular, his name is Jairus, and, and, and he's waiting. It says he's the leader of the local synagogue. So he's a religious leader, a Jewish leader, and the Jewish leaders are growing some real contempt for Jesus. They not only see him as a competitor, they see him as an all-out danger. He's a threat to everything that's going on with them. And so there's going to be some degree to which this is not going to be the first man in line. He's not going to be the one first in the greeting party. But there he is, and what does it say? He came to him, he falls on his feet before Jesus. He just, he just bows down and pleads to him, I need you to come to my house. Why? My 12-year-old daughter is dying, and only you can do something about it. Here's a religious leader. He hangs out with people that pray all the time. He has all of this behind him, and what does he do? He comes and he says, Only you, Jesus, only you can do something about this. He owns Jesus in that moment, very publicly. So this is happening, and it's kind of fascinating because what you have is a sandwich going on. You have Jairus and Jairus, and in the middle, we have yet another story. So he's walking, he's walking with Jairus to his house, and as he is, this other story begins to unfold. There's a woman in the crowd, And she's suffered with constant bleeding for 12 12 years. She has a uterine condition that she just never stops bleeding. And Mark tells us she's done everything to try to cure this. She's gone to doctor after doctor after doctor. And the only thing that doctors have done is empty her purse. She's to the point that she's penniless. She's given up everything looking for a cure. You know, we have some folks around here with chronic diseases, with chronic conditions. You get desperate. You get really desperate. You spend a lot of time watching infomercials at three in the morning, thinking, maybe that, maybe this. You go to this specialist, that doctor, you try this pill, you try anything you can, you try everything to try to finally just feel better. There she is, and she's like, I've heard about this Jesus, I've heard that he heals people. You know, it's fascinating. She doesn't walk up to him and say, Jesus, I need your help. She doesn't explain her condition and say, here's what's going on. The Bible says that she actually reasons in her mind that if she can just come up behind him and just, just touch part of his robe, that maybe healing will come to her. That's all she has to do. And so she does. She comes up behind him and she touches his robe and the Bible says instantly the bleeding stopped. Can you imagine? I mean, some of you do the, the migraines They make you crazy. Can you imagine what it's like to just, boom, they're done. They're gone. In that moment, she is instantly and completely healed. And there's got to be this sense of euphoria rising up in her. And then Jesus turns and says, who touched me? And you know what? She knows. She knows she's the one. She knows she did it. But maybe maybe the crowd, maybe she'll be able to get away with this, Right? And people have been pressed. Even Peter says, Jesus, come on, really, dude? I mean, everybody's touching you. Are you kidding me? No, power went out from me. Power went out from me. Somebody touched me. And so the woman, she realizes she can't hide it anymore. And it says she comes and she, she falls to her knees and she's trembling in front of him. Why is she fearful? I mean, don't you think she serves as a great testimonial for Jesus? Don't you think she'd go, it was me. I just touched her robe and I'm healed. It's great. Instead, she comes and she's fearful. Why is she fearful? you got to understand something. This physical condition that she had, by Jewish law, it made her ceremonially unclean. That meant for 12 years, she was not allowed to go to the temple. That meant for 12 years, she was not allowed to participate in any ceremony of the Jewish religion. That meant that for the most part, she was cut off from community. She had grown really used to living in the shadows. She had grown really used to living at a distance, far away. She had grown used to not asking. She had grown used to being secret. Not only that, because she's unclean, by touching Jesus, she made him unclean. She made him unclean. And so now she's responsible... For Jesus being unclean. There's a lot going on in this woman's head. A lot going on in this woman's heart. And and she explains what happened. And you know what Jesus' response is? Verse 48, daughter. A lot of times Jesus calls women woman. And you know, to modern ears, that does not sound good, right? I mean, if I I go, hey woman, uh, most of you go, wow. Jerk, right? That, it, Jesus didn't, that, he wasn't that kind of hey woman. It, it translates totally different in Aramaic, okay? It feels different, I promise you. But this word, daughter, what is he saying to her? You're part of the family. You're a daughter of Abraham. You're part of, he just got done saying, that's not my mother or my brothers. My family are the people who do the will of God. Daughter, you're part of my family. There's more going on here than just a healing of a disease. There's there's a healing of the entirety of her condition. She's no longer separated from everybody. She's drawn in. And not only that, he says, your faith has made you well. So important that that Jesus says this. It might have been easy for her to think that she had figured out a magic trick. All I had to do was touch a robe. Hey, just if we could slice up pieces of Jesus' robe and hand it out, magic trick. Wasn't magic. Wasn't magic. Her faith, her faith had made her whole. And he says, Go in peace. And the implication behind all of this is not that she had just received physical healing, she had received spiritual healing as well. She had received her salvation. This woman is audacious in her request. She's audacious in her desire to be healed. She's audacious in her willingness to want Jesus to heal her. Where does that come from? What grew that audacious spirit in her? This one's pretty simple. It was desperation. She was desperate. She had tried everything else and it hadn't worked. Maybe Jesus. But there was more than just a "I'll try Jesus too." It was a faith that says, this is the answer. He is the answer. You become so desperate in whatever you're facing, so desperate that you're finally willing to say, all the other stuff I've been trying, it's not the answer. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. Jesus is the only answer to what I'm facing. I choose Jesus. Well, that was amazing. But in the meantime, they're still walking to Jairus' house. And they're walking, and on the way, people come and say, Jesus doesn't even have to come. The master doesn't even have to come. Your daughter died. I've got a daughter that I love beyond my ability to love. And if I just receive those words from a messenger that my daughter died, the lump in my throat is so huge you're going to see it, and the eyes are going to well up with tears, and I'm going to probably start bawling right there on the spot. And Jesus doesn't, he doesn't even give a chance for the emotion to flow. He just says, it's going to be okay. I promise you, it's going to be okay. Let's keep walking. They get to the house. He takes Peter, James, and John, the little girl's father, the little girl's mother. They walk into the house. And they have have this routine, very unlike us, professional mourners. You hire people to mourn. You know, people are mourning and wailing and all this stuff is going on. Jesus says, cut the band. We don't need it. She's not dead. And they all laugh at Jesus, the Bible says. They laugh. You know, come on, of course she's dead. Of course she died. Are you crazy? No, she's only sleeping. So they walk into the room, and, and, and Jesus walks up to her, and, and you can't miss this little detail. He takes her by the hand. What, why is that significant? Touching a dead person made you ceremonially unclean. He's making a point in this thing. You all think the thing that makes you unclean is physical stuff. No, it's sin that makes you unclean. It has nothing to do with this stuff at all. He doesn't, he doesn't stand across the room. I can't touch her. I want to go to church tomorrow, but boom, be, you know, no. He takes her by the hand. He shows that connection, that affection, that love, and he says, get up, my child. It says immediately she stood up. She stands up, and, and Jesus, next thing, get her some McDonald's. She needs chicken nuggets, get her fries, get, get her Get her. a McFlurry. Come on, feed her, feed her. Her parents are overwhelmed, they can't believe it. And here's what Jesus says, don't tell anybody. I, I, you know, some people look at this and they think Jesus was doing reverse psychology. You don't tell, so they will tell. No, he really doesn't want them to tell. His time has not yet come. How do you not tell? How do you, your daughter was just brought back to life. How do you not tell? Anyway let's go back in the boat and get to the other side of the lake. Go back to the beginning. So there at the beginning... Um, oh, I've I got to finish this part. Sorry, this is important. We've got to finish with Jairus. Because Jairus teaches us something about developing this um, audacious spirit. You look at this man who's willing to bow his knee To Jesus very publicly he's the religious leader he should be able to do this his prayers theoretically should count more than everybody else's right he's the religious leader he's part of the group that's questioning the credibility of Jesus and what does he do He doesn't just walk up and whisper in his ear or slip slip to the disciples a note. Would you make sure he gets this? He very publicly gets in Jesus' face and gets down on his knee. And getting down on his knee, he says, you have authority over me. I'm looking to you. I'm looking to you. What's going on here? What, What was part of the audacious spirit of Jairus? There is just tremendous humility here. A humility that is willing to say, I don't care what anybody thinks. I am publicly owning Jesus. I am publicly owning Jesus. I don't care what the world thinks. I am publicly owning Jesus. We've gone through almost 12 months now of what we've been going through. At any point has somebody asked, how are you, how are you handling this? How are you getting through? And you started talking about your faith. And you could feel their eyes roll into the back of their head. Oh, you're nuts. You're one of those people. You see, I'm science and data, and you're you're voodoo and Jesus. Do you publicly own Jesus? Do you have the humility to say, I choose Jesus? That's, That's where Jairus is coming from. He could have lost everything. Could have lost his position. Certainly could have lost respect among people, but he was willing to humble himself enough to ask an audacious request. Okay, let's get back in the boat. Go back to the other side of the lake. And this, is, this happened previously, so we're not literally back in the boat. This is, meanwhile, back at the ranch. So let's go back on over to the area of the Gerizines, and we have the greeter. This naked guy comes out screaming, demon-possessed. So many demons in him that his nickname is Legion. Too many to count. And Jesus doesn't have a conversation with the man. He can't. He has a conversation with the demons. And the demons, their prime request is, please, please, please don't send us to the bottomless pit right now. we got more work we want to do. We've got more, more people we want to hassle. Please don't separate us eternally right now. And, and they, they see a herd of swine and they say, make us go there instead. Make us go there. Now there's this cheap joke that a lot of people tell at this point. And it's basically something like this. What in the world were a bunch of pigs doing in Israel? Certainly these Jews were disobeying God, raising pigs. They're not supposed to be eating bacon, right? Remember, this is, this is the Decapolis. This is an area controlled by Gentile people. These are Gentiles. These are not Jews. So you got to kind of, you got to get that out of your head. These are Gentile people, and that was their economy, Their economy is bacon. Their economy is ham hocks. Their economy is found in those pigs. So these people come out of the town to see what's going on. And they see two things. First, they see the town greeter sitting clothed and in his right mind. They've not seen this before. Do any of you have a neighbor who has a really just wacko psycho dog? The kind of dog that when you're walking down the street, you purposely walk to the other side of the street because you know it's going to take a chunk out of your calf. There were a couple of those on the way to school when I was a little kid where we literally, we'd walk to the other side of the street because we were so fearful of the dog. This guy was that dog. People walked by the cemetery, and they were terrified. They were scared to death that this guy was going to come out and do something to them. And there he is in his right mind, clothed. And then they see the floating sow, They see all the dead pigs. And, and, And you know what they do? They say, Jesus, you are not safe. Get out of here. You're not safe. We don't know what to do with you. You are not safe. Get out of here. And Jesus complies. It says he got back in the boat. And this is when he's going to cross over and, and meet Jairus. He gets back in the boat. And this man, it says, who had been freed from the demons, he begged Jesus to let him go with him. He begs him, please, I want to join you. Can, can I be with you? Can I, can I just go with you? I don't know what's going through his mind. Maybe he's thinking I have nowhere else to go. Is the town going to bring me back in? What am I supposed to do from here forward? Or maybe there's some other motivation going on in him. But whatever it is, he's like, I'm just, i giving you my life. I'm ready to follow you wherever you go. And I think it's one of the only times that someone asks to follow Jesus and he says, No, no, I, I don't want you to come with me. I've got something better for you to do. You're going to go back to your town and you're going to tell every person what God did for you. You are, you are just going to begin this process of telling people. they got to realize this, this guy, he's not Jewish. He's a Gentile. The ministry to the Gentiles has not yet begun. You can almost see Jesus saying, there are going to be this day. It's called Pentecost. Pentecost is going to happen shortly after. We'll be back. Until then, let people know. Let people know what I've done. Let people know what God has done for you. And it says he went through all the town proclaiming. That's the word for preaching. He went through all the town preaching the great things Jesus had done for him. Now what's fascinating is, what did he say to Jairus and his wife? Don't say a word. Keep it quiet. But among the Gentiles, let it spread. Let everybody know. Let everybody know what happened here. How does this guy get the audacity, the nerve, to look Jesus in the eye and say, let me follow you? Where does that audacity come from? I'll give you one word, and it doesn't, it doesn't encapsulate everything I want to say, but it's the word gratitude. It's the word gratitude. And by gratitude, I'm not talking about a simple thank you. You know, some of us sometimes, someone's done something nice for us and we feel the need to return the favor. That's not gratitude. That's, kinda, that's more like a it's a grateful payback. Gratitude on the part of this guy was, without you, I don't have a life. I owe you everything. And I want to give you my life. The opposite of gratitude, you know, our friends in in the wilderness, the Israelites in the wilderness, cross that wide open Red Sea, cross it. Slam shut. That was amazing. We're thirsty. You thirsty? I'm thirsty. We're going to die. You know, where's water? Where's water? Water flows from a rock. That was amazing. Oh, I'm hungry. You hungry? I'm hungry. We need some food. We're going to die. Manna comes. That was amazing. You know, it just keeps going with them, right? They remember a miracle for about a minute and a half. They've not learned a lifestyle of gratitude. They've not learned a lifestyle that says, I owe you everything. And so an audacious person, really, their theme song is that song that I love. Do it again. I've seen you move, you move the mountains, and I believe you can do it again. I believe you, God. I believe you did these wonderful things in my life, and I believe you can do it again. And so looking at those three words today, I ask you, what is it that, that blocks that audacious spirit in you? Is it a lack of desperation? The desperate person realizes that God can do anything. I've tried everything. God can do anything. And my desperation drives me to God. What about humility? The humble person is willing to risk everything. Jairus, was he was willing to risk his reputation. He was willing to risk his role in the temple. He was willing to risk everything to publicly own Jesus. Are you willing to risk anything to publicly own Jesus, to have that kind of humility? Gratitude. The gratitude of this man formerly known as Legion, but now clothed in a right mind who out of gratitude is willing to say, I'm giving you all of me. I'm handing myself over to you. You can have me, God. Have you come to that place of gratitude that you realize you don't own you? God owns you. God owns you. So why would I not give him every ounce of my audacious spirit? With those words on the, on the screen, I'd love you to take communion right now. Get that cup in your hand. Get the bread. And I want you to zero in on the one. The one that you kind of realize in this moment that that's that's what holds back an audacious spirit. With the bread in your hand, would you realize that you can only hold one thing at a time? I'd rather hold Jesus... And release my desperation and, 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 and release my lack of desperation, release my my lack of humility, release my my lack of gratitude. I'd rather have Jesus. Let Jesus know right now that He can do whatever is necessary to grow you in that area that you might become more audacious. Let's take the bread together. In taking the cup, would you, in in a quiet moment here, think of one of the audacious prayers you've been praying and pray it with a renewed spirit to God, a renewed spirit of audacity, one that wells from desperation and humility, and gratitude. Lift that request to God. Let's drink the cup together. Grow us, God. Don't let the Bible just be a collection of stories and teachings and moments that are fascinating. Allow it to be a transformative word that changes us and makes us look like Jesus. Open our hearts to receive you in a renewed way. to speak with you with an audacious spirit. when is the last time your soul said hey (laughs) oh i mean come on it is time to let your soul wake up it is time for too long we have just been sleeping comfortably in jesus nice and warm and cuddly it is time to pray god wake my soul wake me up to every spiritual reality wake me up to an audacious spirit I'll tell you what, all day long, all week long, here's going to be my prayer for you. That you wake up and all of a sudden you're going like, hey, oh, and you don't even know why. And it's because finally, finally, that sleeper soul woke up. You have a good week. We'll see you.